0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. The IoT, or Internet of Things, broadly defined is the collection of physical objects with IP addresses connected to the Internet. From consumer devices like security cameras, DVRs and smart thermostats to industrial control systems and autonomous cars, the IoT offers potential for opportunity and vulnerability. In the first half of this CyberWire special edition, we speak with IoT experts for their take on the current state of the Internet of Things consumers, enterprise, industrial control, and even self-driving cars. Later in the program, we examine third-party risk with some sobering statistics from a recent IoT industry survey. Stay with us.
2: We're certainly living in a new world, in a new connected world, that is.
1: Katie Curtin is Director of IOT Cybersecurity Product Management for AT&T. You
2: know, with self-driving cars quickly emerging or uh, smart manufacturing environments really ran by robots, or even smart city environments where all the data and diagnostics is collected through connected energy grids or lights, or water supply networks, we're really living in a new type of world where connectivity is paramount it's driving new types of devices now being connected to the internet and creating a lot of value for the consumers of those devices however when we talk about security and these newly connected devices now now back on the grid becoming really critical components of how the business and the public systems are now using these these devices have now become almost like infrastructure so the need to secure these devices and secure these environments folks cannot afford a compromised scenario so with IOT security Definitely growing in more concern and, and as we see more headlined examples where devices can be leveraged for malicious reasons, certainly security is top of mind now and more so brought into those conversations when we start addressing the value of IoT.
0: There's two parts to that. Number one is where are we from the actual functional perspective, right? So why are people making and adopting IoT devices?
1: Chris Poulin is a principal at Booz Allen Hamilton, leading the Internet of Things security strategy for their strategic innovation group, as well as their industrial control group.
0: We're still sort of on the beginning stages of that, I think. We're transitioning away from people just coming up with random ideas and putting them into products and actually starting to think about what the value is. That's good. The problem is that we're still finding our way. We're still sort of at the beginning of figuring out how to make things and how to instrument them and how to make them intercommunicate. And as always, though, the second component is security, which is, uh, when I say as always, I mean it's an afterthought. So... I know that there are lots of iot makers who are starting to think about security and a lot of them by the way think about security early on in the process but they don't bother to flesh it out because it's it's slow it slows down it slows down progress it slows down development of the product in the first place security is often at odds with functionality you know so the perfectly secure product does nothing right and the perfectly functional product has no security so you know, there's always this tension between those two things. And so it's usually put off until after the product has been proven and produced and and there's a market for it.
2: So one of the big problems in this space is that a lot of these devices that are now being connected to the Internet were never built to be connected to the Internet. they are legacy devices, uh, PLCs, HMIs that serve a great purpose and are very robust devices and perform robust operational functions. But now that they're being connected to the internet, it brings a boatload of new security concerns and questions about how to secure these devices. One of the big key learnings uh, that we've learned in talking with our customers is that, you know while manufacturing energy and similar industrial verticals are adopting IoT for the obvious reasons and value that it provides, the ability to secure these environments and these industrial control systems, you can't quite treat them the same as you do with your IT security strategy. You know, traditional IT security measures do not necessarily translate to the operational side or operational technology. I wouldn't say that they're um, necessarily lagging behind. I think instead we need to build out a stronger strategy to specifically address those OT specific needs and adopt strategy to specifically start securing these environments and addressing the unique nuances that it brings.
1: On the consumer side of the IoT, we hear of devices like security cameras or DVRs being herded into botnets and being used for things like distributed denial-of-service attacks while still maintaining their original functionality. There's little incentive for either the consumer or the manufacturer to update the installed device.
0: I think the Mirai botnet and WannaCry, you know, is the most recent example, have proven that the insecurities at the consumer level can actually affect enterprises and, in fact, with mirai it can affect the uh, internet infrastructure you know by going after some infrastructure provider what that means is that you don't have any incentive on the consumer side so you have to put regulation in place and the regulation is going to be difficult to impose on the consumers themselves so it actually by necessity is going to have to be um, imposed on the manufacturers and in the case of of Mirai, the way to deal with that is to actually go back to the consumers, and, to the excuse me, the makers and say, if you put hard-coded passwords, um, accounts of passwords in your product, then we're going to penalize you. And you have to conform to certain best practices, such as in order for this device to um, be installed and usable at a consumer's uh, site, they have to set a password and it has to conform to certain... Um, strength requirements, and it has to be updatable.
2: Now that we are seeing more top headlines around various different cyber attacks, I do think that the general consumer space is getting a bit more aware. Granted, we still have a lot more work to do in that space, and I think we also need to kind of dumb down the language around cybersecurity so it's not deemed to be such a more complex topic and make it more consumer friendly. But really, it's consumer behavior will drive the types of devices or the types of products that OEM should be building. And I think when we talk about kind of liability and and in the event of a breach, the various different pieces of the ecosystem, hopefully we will see that changing where, you know, manufacturers could be taking on more ownership or there will be standards or, you know, guidelines that – that certain individuals or companies would have to abide by.
1: What do you think of this notion of there needing to be sort of an equivalent of underwriter's laboratory for IoT?
2: Definitely, I think, top of mind, and I've been hearing it in our circles quite frequently recently. I'd say it's a best practice when we're talking about IoT or really broader to your cybersecurity posture to have a third party, an unbiased third party, an outsider to come and evaluate your environment and uh, essentially provide a risk assessment or recommendation on how best to increase or improve your your security. Now we're talking about IoT, especially since that's such a nascent and new area where a lot of customers are grappling with how to secure their IoT infrastructure or IoT networks, and don't quite have a strategy in place. Adopting a UL type of program where you have, you know, outside consultants to assess where you are in that risk assessment. Um, based on these newly connected devices into your environment, certainly a best practice, and would recommend.
0: Totally in favor. However, <laughs> it's an interesting conundrum, right? The UL is really good at dealing with hardware sides of things. So let's just take the toaster or refrigerator, which seem to be u- ubiquitous consumer-based IoT devices. When toaster from the UL, if it catches fire in normal operation, then the manufacturer can be held liable for that. You know, and DUL is uh, sets the guidelines and does the testing for those things. But then on the other hand, right, so basically the liability falls back on the, the maker is what I'm saying. On the other hand, when you look at software nowadays, the end-user license agreement pretty much puts all the liability on the consumer. So when you start connecting toasters from a UL perspective and then you have software, you basically are combining two different liability models and who actually ends up uh, being liable if the toaster catches fire because of the software flaw. And then looking at it from a sort of an orthogonal perspective – What if, because of the right to repair, uh, a consumer decides that they're going to soup up their toaster for whatever reason? Now they modify the firmware and the toaster catches on fire. Who's liable at that point? I agree that we should have some sort of UL um, type of certification, but I don't know how we're going to do that with software. Um, I think there are ways to do it, but I also know that having worked in the software industry for over 30 years, that we still don't write secure code and there's no definitive way to say something that something has a quantitative measure of security so we we've got to figure out how we're going to quantify what we consider to be code level security figure out the liability um, calculus and once we do those things if we can do those things then we'll have a ul um, ul type of certification for products
1: Another emerging and rapidly evolving IoT sector is the automotive industry, with semi-autonomous cars on the roads today and projects well underway for fully autonomous vehicles. And many new cars these days are equipped with integrated mobile internet connections.
0: Car manufacturers are are quite concerned. Um, I would say that there's pretty broad level of um, maturity or at least commitment to solving the cybersecurity problem. In other words, they're all committed to doing it. They understand, and interestingly, I don't know how much of the history you know, but back in 2010, uh, the University of California, San Diego, and University of Washington put out a paper that basically profiled how you could hack into a car. Um, And then they produced a second paper in 2011 showing how the external threat surface allowed you to hack into it from outside the car. And then those same researchers, uh, three or four years later, sort of mimicked that same research by doing it, you know, sitting in the backseat of the car with a cable snaking across into the dashboard. And then, you know, a year and a half later, they managed to hack the uh, the Jeep remotely across the airwaves. And so some automotive manufacturers are actually taking it absolutely seriously. And they've re- uh, re-architected their organization to provide security at all levels. And that's great. Some of them actually are concerned about it, but they're not spending a lot of money and they have not yet uh, realized that they need to have governance and guidance across the entire organization instead of just within the car design and then separately in the backend systems which um, accept the data and, and mediate the uh, communications to and from the car. So we're seeing, I see a broad level, but they're all interested in it. But the one thing I will say that's kind of interesting about that is right now we haven't seen a sweeping motive for a threat actor to actually attack the cars. You know, and I, I personally believe that in most of the cases, aside from, ex, you know, some extremists, which comprise probably a small, uh, a fairly small segment of risk, the motive is going to be largely financial and potentially nation state. So the two use cases that I, that I think are most likely are ransomware in a vehicle, you know, so stopping your car from starting and uh, demanding Bitcoin over your your entertainment system you know the screen in the car um, before you can start your car and and then the second one is a a nation-state potential uh, motivation would be not to do anything harmful to the passenger i I don't think that general cyber criminals are motivated to harm somebody that's a that's a um, ethical line that i don't think is going to be crossed anytime soon at least not purposefully Uh, But nation states would want to break in and then listen to state secrets on government vehicles, for example, over the hands-free microphone. Those are the two of the more likely uh, motives that I can see in the near future.
1: Looking toward the horizon, both Chris Poulin and Katie Curtin are cautiously optimistic about the IoT. It's still relatively new and rapidly evolving.
0: Cyber is one of those things that, when you make it just an economic uh, incentive, then you're not doing the industry service. And so I think to a certain extent, we need to do two things. Number one, as researchers, and uh, people who are on the leading edges, go start working with these uh, products. You know, so go buy a connected car. Don't just be the fearful security person. Go get those things and start understanding how they work. And you know, if you've got a technical background, start whacking with them. You know, see if you can plug into the OBD2 port and um, leverage some other people's work and see what kind of things seem to be insecure in your vehicle. So, in other words, eat your own food in a way, and then that will help to inform you as a security person. And then you can also share that um, with the research community and in the consumer product um, and in the enterprise product community. Um, But number two is also start doing something that is more of a crowdsourced way to help people. So one of the things that's sort of interesting to me is, you know, we talked about the consumer products and how Mirai Botnet took advantage of the fact that consumers don't know how to protect their products. So one of the ways we might be able to do it to help out with consumers is go find these products that are um, insecure. So if people have web cameras that are insecure, they have default passwords on them, and then Work with uh, law enforcement because technically we don't have the ability to you know, go and – even if I know what the password is for somebody's webcam and I know that it's insecure, uh, I, it's beyond my, my legal rights to actually log in and change their password and send them an email saying, hey, I just helped you. That's not kosher. Don't do that. Um, so work with law enforcement to find out a way to say, look, we found that there's this uh, systemic problem with a webcam or we found a problem with a – Energy and utility. There's been some generator that's exposed online. So, so work and actually go out and find these things that are insecure. Find the right people and notify them. It's sort of what researchers are doing now, you know, except that they're they're breaking into G or they're reverse engineering uh, firmware in vehicles and things like that. I'm not saying go do that because not everybody has that skill set. But a lot of there are a lot of us out there that can actually determine when something is exposed, when it shouldn't be. And so take the time to actually find out how to notify someone in authority who has the authority to, uh, to help to make that thing more secure. And that's just one example, by the way, find out where your own project is and then try to help other people without demanding payment for
2: it. I think it first starts with awareness and continuing to highlight the risks and issues that these IoT applications and infrastructures could potentially cause. You know, we hear it more often than not that security is that afterthought and oftentimes adopted or considered only when a you know another company within the same vertical or their competitor within the same vertical got hacked, then they start thinking about it. We really need to stop that type of thinking and ensure that security is built within the design phase and folks are more aware as they're adopting IoT practices to ask those security questions. You know, ensure that you're purchasing the right type of application or device from a trusted or well-known device manufacturer, So that you're asking those questions right at, right at the forefront. But outside of that, I think the technology needs to emerge. When we talk about IoT and kind of the nuances that IoT brings, especially around the device itself, it's kind of the, the wild, wild west. Um, and when we talk about the various types of devices, that are now in the ecosystem and the lack of standards that we really have. So the technology needs to emerge where we can get to a a widely adopted standard when we're talking about IoT protocols or IoT clients on the device itself. Uh, Because a lot of these devices, the IoT devices, may not be as robust as a smartphone device where you can run robust security software. Being able to apply the right technology and the right security controls to those types of devices whether it be through known standard protocols or bringing those protections into the network. We really need to bring that technology so it is more readily accessible for these wide, vast number of devices and device types that are now within the IoT ecosystem.
1: That's Katie Curtin from AT&T and Chris Poulin from Booz Allen Hamilton. In the second part of our program, we take a look at third-party risk the Poneman Institute recently released an independent research report titled The Internet of Things, A New Era of Third-Party Risk. Dr. Larry Poneman is the chairman and founder of the Poneman Institute, and he's going to take us through some of the report's findings. But first, we'll hear from Gary Roboff, a senior advisor at Shared Assessments and the Santa Fe Group, who were the sponsors of the report.
3: Third-party risk uh, is a term that really applies to companies who outsource specific activities to vendors or third parties. And um, when a company outsources a given activity, it, it, it actually can outsource the activity, but it can't outsource the management or the responsibility for controlling that risk. And that's the heart of the issue. So for, if, for example, I'm a company and I have a certain security hygiene standard, it's incumbent on me to make sure that if I've outsourced that particular activity to another entity, that that company is meeting the same level of security hygiene that that would be in place if I had been doing the activity myself. What we found is that in general, our respondents, 553 qualified
4: respondents to the survey, in general identified iot risk as something that is very significant for their organizations
1: that's dr larry poneman
4: at the same time they recognized the need to innovate in iot you know in other words iot is not necessarily a bad thing it actually accomplishes all sorts of good things for society and it could be very profitable for companies so it wasn't about stopping the iot train freight train it was about how do you make it more secure so even though there was a high level of awareness about IoT as a potential risk area organizations were doing very little to manage that risk. You know, one of the surprising findings is that the majority of respondents believe that IoT was not on the radar radar screen of C-level executives, you know, the people who drive the organization weren't necessarily understanding or seeing IoT risk. Is something that, w- that could be potentially very serious.
3: When we asked uh, whether the board of directors requires assurances that IOT risk among third parties is even being assessed, only 25 percent of the respondents said, yes, my board wants those assurances. That's a very important finding.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that's a, a bit of a sobering finding. I mean, what do you think is, is behind this disconnect between what I think many people, certainly on the IT side, are, are recognizing as an important risk and uh, and the boardroom maybe not being up to speed on realizing it?
4: What we found not only in this study but you know other Poneman studies is boards of directors and C-level executives are being held responsible by regulators and the public at large for ensuring that information or IT infrastructure is maintained at a high level of security. In reality, a lot of boards and C-level executives uh, do not see security as a strategic issue. They see it as tactical and therefore they push responsibility down in the organization. And so what we see is a schism where you have uh, security experts and IT operations folks, and all sorts of good people fighting fires and dealing with problems. But it, it, the issues are not necessarily elevated to the C level or to members of the board. Occasionally, when there's a disaster, I'm sure, for example, the Target board of directors they were informed, you know, but it was probably after the fact. So these are these are long-lasting problems, and it, it, it is incumbent on organizations to build a culture for security so that information about security risks, security vulnerabilities, threats, and so forth are known to the board and the CEO and other C-level executives.
3: One of the issues on boards generally is that uh, often there is not a level of security expertise which is being increasingly demanded, at least by regulators in the financial services industry. You've seen a number of large boards uh, actually go higher. Uh, individuals to serve on the board, usually on risk committees uh, that have a degree of dedicated expertise in emerging risk issues. That's a very important trend. A a lot of that is a function of what the tone at the top is like at the board level, how good a job the board has done in structuring a a risk management regime that enables two-way communication. So not only does the board want to be setting the tone for the types of expectations that it has about compliance and ethical behavior and, and and really conveying the risk appetite that any board uh, will develop over time that that certainly needs to be diffused throughout the organization on the other hand the you know uh, all levels of the organization have to have a clear communications channel up to the board and the board has to listen there has to be a structure in place uh, to enable that conversation uh, to take place And we're gradually beginning to see, I think, some uh, progress in those areas. So one of the questions we asked, we use a likelihood scale, how likely
4: will this scenario occur? And we asked our respondent to kind of think two years ahead, what is the likelihood? And we got this one result that was just amazing. Uh, The likelihood that a security incident related to unsecured IoT devices or applications could be catastrophic to the company. 94% believe that to be so. Here's another striking result, the loss or theft of data caused by unsecured IOT devices or applications, 78% believe that that was likely over the next two years. And and finally, a cyber attack caused by unsecured IOT devices or applications. In other words, we left a hole in our chain. Um, Our chain of trust, I should say, wasn't working very well. And that was 76% believe that to be likely. So. You know, again, our respondents believe that this is a problem and it will probably get worse over the next two years, even though we're really not doing a lot right now to create that secure infrastructure.
3: If you believe what security uh, people inside of organizations say, they, they really recognize that there is a huge security hole. It, you know, you can also say that's a very positive outcome. I think what you have to then look at are other things that have come out of the survey. Uh, things like, is managing uh, third-party IoT risk a priority in your organization? Only 30% said yes, right? And then, um, does your organization allocate specific resources? resources to managing iot uh, third party risks only 27% said yes so you have that that gap between at the moment the recognition and sort of you you're getting a sense of the culture within organizations and what you hope and expect is that that gap will begin to shrink pretty quickly in terms
1: of the regulatory framework do we see what is the influence that we're going to see from there? In other words, you know, um, buildings were required to have fire escapes and that helped a lot more people survive fires. Do we think we're going to be in a, a situation where we're going to see more regulations to uh, ensure that some of these vulnerabilities are taken care of?
3: My, my thinking is twofold. First, you know, in, in some uh, sectors such as financial services. There's already high-level guidance that actually um, incorporates in a broad way the Internet of Things. I'm not sure that boards have recognized that yet, but they will, and regulators will enforce it. You can see an environment where there are many different types of uh, of attacks that cause. Different sectors. We've talked about the medical sector. We've talked about the automobile uh, industry. Um, Anything that is connected, where you have the ability to cause uh, a headline that involves serious consequences to a large number of individuals, or even in some cases, a small number of individuals, is likely to. Uh, involve some type of standardized approach to solve the problem in some places that's definitely going to be uh, a regulatory intervention it's really essential to include third-party IOT risk uh, in all levels of governance right so so we we see that that is missing as a priority at the board level we see that resources are not being allocated Properly to address um, IoT uh, risks today. Uh, So, number one recommendation is. Uh, There has to be recognition of the problem that's got to be incorporated into enterprise risk management systems and and processes that exist already. The board has to understand fully what the consequences of IoT attacks might be for their firm. Uh, Recommendation number two is that um, asset management processes and inventory systems really Must include IoT devices. And uh, more than just a simple inventory, it's essential that firms understand the security characteristics of every iot device that's both within their four walls and ideally within the four walls of their vendors if those uh, vendors support critical activities that can cause serious consequences for uh, the firm that has done the outsourcing and when devices uh, are found to have inadequate security controls they need to be replaced and they should be replaced quickly You wanna make sure that your third party assessment techniques and the processes around those techniques um, are are really adequate to ensure the presence and effectiveness of controls around IoT devices, very basic. So IoT
4: today, it's about technology that allows us to do all sorts of really great things. There will continue to be innovation in the IoT ecosystem But the idea is that there's no reason why we don't build security as part of the innovation process. In other words, you know, it's not an either or, but it's both. There's no reason why we can't start to see organizations in the early phase and during the engineering phase of the product development lifecycle starting to think about how to secure those devices. I think regulations will play an important role, but I think it's going to be incumbent upon organizations, even from a profitability point of view to make sure that they're starting to build security into these devices at, at a very early phase in the development lifecycle, We're starting to see that in the medical device area, but we don't see that in you know other IOT devices like your refrigerator or microwave or television. Or
3: your, or your car,
4: really. Or your car, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, Gary, I, I'm curious, you know, in, in when it comes to quantifying the risk from IoT devices, you know, again, using the analogy of, of uh, fire prevention, you know, I can, I, when I'm thinking about fire for the building that I own, I can install sprinklers, and I can also buy insurance. And those are two different approaches to dealing with the possibility of having a fire. In something that's rapidly evolving the way it is, and also is as new as it is, how do you go about helping? organizations determine how best to invest their money in that spectrum of possible uh, ways to deal with these sorts
3: of risks. You know, it's very, first of all, it's very important to collaborate. You want to be able to collaborate with peers, with associations. You want to socialize approaches um, in ways that will give you insights that you might not necessarily see within your own four walls. So I can't stress how important it is to collaborate. With industry experts, with associations, even with regulators, um, that can be a very uh, important way to even begin to think about how you address some of the concerns. There are concerns that come from outside and about which you might have little ability to stop. And an example of that is a distributed denial of service attack. You're going to have no effective say about whether a an attempt of a denial of service attack happens uh, on your company, but you will have something to say about how effective it can be. Uh, We've already seen distributed denial of service attacks that come from IoT uh, devices. Uh, firms ought to be uh, taking steps to prevent the consequences of those attacks from having a material impact on their ongoing operations. Uh, there are steps that you can take as a as a corporation uh, or as any organization to help prepare yourself both from the perspective of what happens within your own four walls and what happens with the vendors that you use uh, to help you complete processes that are essential. We've talked about some of those. It's about inventory control. It's about making sure that you have effective controls uh, over all of your IoT devices. That's sort of IoT Risk Management 101, and to the extent that uh, you can... Uh, follow through with even even some very basic steps, you have the ability to uh, at least partially mitigate the consequences of IoT issues in your own environment. We
4: think that this research is
3: important because
4: it, you know, starts to establish from a risk management perspective, the need to, you know, think broadly about how IoT devices in different forms, you know, will, will impact the organization, and I think this shows that we have a lot of work to do to improve the state of security and security posture, you know, with respect to IoT. But it's a starting point, and as Gary mentioned, there's also some lessons that basic steps that organizations can take immediately that will not drive costs <laughs> up costs too much anyway, like policies and procedures and training and creating awareness. Creating a governance process and a culture for security, I think, will go a long way to reducing you know, some of these more salient IoT risks that we discussed.
1: And that's our CyberWire Special Edition. Our thanks to Dr. Larry Poneman, Gary Roboff, Katie Curtin, and Chris Poulin for joining us. If you enjoyed this program, we hope you'll share it with your friends and colleagues. And will subscribe to our podcast and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find our show. The Cyberwire Podcast is produced by Pratt Street Media. Our editor is John Petrick. Social Media Editor is Jennifer Iben, Technical editor is Chris Russell. Executive editor is Peter Kilby, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's vant acom slash
0: cyber.